Please remain standing as you're able, and I'll stand as long as I'm able. I'm going to be 60 in a few days. I had no idea 60 was the new 90, but uh, (laughs) apparently so. Um, And uh, as we come before God's word, we'll do it very likely as Jesus and the disciples would have uh, by reciting what he called the great commandment. Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Ahad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Scripture this morning is the great invitation from Jesus. It's found in the 11th chapter of Matthew, beginning verse at verse 28. Come unto me, those of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. Just a tip for this morning, if you're already a little tired at finding your eyes closed during the sermon, you're probably not alone. But one thing you could do with your eyes closed is kind of picture the different Christian symbols that you've seen in your life. Imagine there are all sorts of uh, crosses that come with things uh, in the middle of the cross or things put on the cross. Uh, sometimes uh, there's uh, symbols like a dove. Or other symbols, like an open Bible could be a symbol of our faith. Other symbols of our faith uh, might include lights of all kind. Uh, My favorite one is of a boat on a sea, and there's a cross right in the middle of the boat, reminding us that though we sail through uh, storms in life, um, uh, Jesus is uh, with us in the boat. And that became actually a favorite symbol of the early church as they tried to describe their existence. So as I look around and see other kinds of symbols, you you might see one this morning, like a triangle representing the Trinity, uh, maybe a baptismal shell uh, you might find as well. But as I look around in And as I looked on the internet, I couldn't find this symbol that Jesus talked about. I cannot find as a symbol for our faith a yoke. And I think that's a good thing. I think that's a good thing because normally in Jesus' day when you found a yoke, it had to do, first of all, with with animals. And a yoke was a way of uh, taking two oxen, putting them together, getting them to harness or pull in the same direction. They got more done. It was also easier on each of them individually when they pulled together in that yoke. And so yoke was often used with animals, occasionally used with people. There were such things as a yoke for a person that might help them uh, pull something that would be ordinarily more difficult for them to pull otherwise, and in the pulling might protect them from getting an in- injured. But usually when you saw yoke in, um, uh, in correlation to a human being, what you normally saw was uh, people who had been vanquished or conquered uh, are paraded before the, the triumph triumphant country, and oftentimes the people were made to wear a yoke. In fact, it's not unusual if you conquered a country to parade the king of that country before your people, and he's wearing a yoke, which is now to say, I'm your slave, I am your servant, I'm going to do what you tell me to do. Uh, it, it is known in history that when the Romans conquered the Jews, that is one of the ways some of the Jews came into the city of Rome to symbolize that they were no longer free, but they were servants and so 
to Rome, and, and, and that was the yoke. And so when I look around and don't see many yokes, uh, I actually feel pretty good about that because it's not the greatest symbol in the world. I was feeling pretty good till between services, Dinah reminded me that the stoles that we all wear on Sunday morning are actually to be representative of a yoke, that it is to remind ourselves that we are servants of, uh, of Jesus and servants of his gospel. So I guess I should feel a little bit better about yokes. And, and whether I feel good about them or not, it is interesting that in this wonderful invitation in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Jesus invited us to take up that yoke. Take uh, my yoke upon you and learn from me, he said. Then he concluded, and my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And I still think it's a strange symbol, uh, but when I did the research, I was really pleased to learn that Jesus wasn't the first one to use the symbol. It actually meant something in Jesus' faith, and that's why he used it. In fact, uh, the, the Jews in Jesus' day would have had three use, uses for the symbol or word yoke. The first one was this. They called it the yoke of the kingdom, which is to say uh, when you wanted to say, I'm going to serve you, God. I'm going to carry out your will and purposes in the world. Uh, they, they said when you made that promise, uh, you were taking the yoke of the kingdom upon you. Now, they did this in a very specific way, and you'll recognize it because we do it every Sunday morning. They took the yoke of the kingdom upon them by reciting the Shema. And so when you recited the Shema, it was like kids, that, when I was in school, we'd do the Pledge of Allegiance every morning, um, and we would do that, and it was our way of saying, of, of, of saying who we were, and what we were going to do, and what we were going to uphold. They do the same thing in the morning and the evening to say, God, we are true to your kingdom, we're going to love you with everything we have, we're going to serve you, and that's called the yoke of the kingdom. But what's interesting is... How do I serve you, Lord? I've pledged allegiance to you, but what do you want me to do? So there was a second yoke that the Jews talked about in Jesus' day. They called it the yoke of the commandments or the yoke of the Torah, which is to say, okay, I I want to be a part of your kingdom. I want to be a part of what you're doing in the world. And what I do to be a part of that is I carry out what you've told me to do. I follow your will. I obey your word, I obey your teaching, I carry out your commandments. And when they did that, that was called taking on the yoke of the Torah or the yoke of the commandments. So so far, so good. So our first major pledge is we're going to support you, God, as you bring your kingdom to earth. We're going to follow and, and do your will. And then the second thing was, and so that we know that we're doing what you want to make earth as you intend, we're going to carry out your commandments. And that's great. Problem became that there was, from the time the first commandments were laid down by Moses, to the time of Jesus, anywhere from 12 to 1400 plus years. And things that might have been intended by Moses, in Moses' day, didn't necessarily mean or look the same way in Jesus' day. So that gave them a problem. How do I, in the first century, live out what Moses asked me to do 14 centuries earlier? And so to get that answer, they looked to great rabbis to help give them interpretations and offer them coaching and guidance. And when a great rabbi gave you guidance on how to keep God's commandments in your day and in your life in such a way to help the kingdom of God come on earth, when he did that, it was called his yoke. So you would follow a rabbi's yoke or you would take on a rabbi's yoke and basically you're saying, I'm buying what you're selling. You're saying this is the way to keep the commandments so that God's will can be done on earth. I'm going to do it your way. And when you did that, you took on the rabbi's yoke. Now, we Christians need to remember this, I think. 
Too often, Jews have gotten a bad rap. Well, they were just trying to do work so they could go to heaven. Jesus and Paul are still laughing at that one. Because that was not what they were talking about. They were talking about, we are carrying out your law, we're doing your works so that heaven could come to earth. So that this world will be as you intended, God. So it was serious business. They already knew that they were going to be with God. They already knew God's love for them. But how would they carry out God's will on earth? They needed help. And so great rabbis would come along and say, okay, here's how you live out this commandment in your day and in your time and in your life. And when they taught them to do that, that was called a yoke. Now, interestingly, Jesus said, hey, of all the yokes that are around, mine is easy and mine is light. And so I wanted to wonder with you for just a few moments this morning, what on earth Jesus meant by my yoke is easy and my burden is light? Was he saying that, you know what, follow me and you won't have to do any of this stuff. You know, all you got to do is believe in me. And if you have faith, it is all fine. Do, you know, don't do anything you don't want to do. Don't worry about it. Just so long as you believe. And many Christians have that sort of attitude uh, about life and about the teaching of God that has come down through Moses. But I have to tell you, Jesus would not have been one of those people. And the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is very clear. He said, look, I have come so that the law and prophets would be fulfilled. Um, and basically fulfill was a technical term that rabbis would use when they'd say, I'm carrying out this law in a way that would honor the spirit that God has or the spirit Moses had for it. So it may not look exactly the same as it looked more than a thousand years ago, but I'm going to do it in a way that honors God and therefore I'll fulfill it. And so Jesus said, I'm going to fulfill the whole law right in front of you. And then he went on and in this invitation, he reminded them that he was gentle and humble of heart. Do you know the only other person in the scripture who's called humble? Anybody? He's pretty famous. Moses. So how in the world could he make a speech about Moses and say, but you don't have to do anything Moses asked you to do? That would be ridiculous. What he's talking about is we're going to do what Moses asked us to do, but I'm going to help give you an interpretation that will honor Moses and fit the world where we are today. And when you did that, you were following his yoke. So I think his yoke was easy, not because you weren't supposed to do it. His yoke was easy because of something else. So why would it be easy? Well, here's my first guess. Maybe Jesus is saying his yoke is easy just in general because it's always easier to do things right the first time and to do them well the first time. Did any of your parents ever teach you this? Always tell the truth and you won't ever have to remember what you said. Remember stuff like that? You know, they were trying to give you a lesson that says, let's get it right the first time and then life will flow more smoothly. Uh, in Jeremiah 6, 16, God says this to the prophet Jeremiah. He said, look, go to these crossroads where you see all these roads are going. Look for the ancient paths. Find the good way, says Jeremiah, and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. Basically, one thing Jeremiah is saying, look, do the things God has asked you to do, and your life will flow much easier that way, and you'll find it more restful than burdensome. The rabbis used to have, ancient rabbis used to have a parable that went something like this. There was a road um, that was coming to a village, and then the road split into two. And there was a guy who would sit by the road, and, inver- the road, and invariably visitors would say, which, which road should I take? And he'd say, well, you know, that depends. Uh, this, they both go into the village. This one is, uh, 
looks, you know, you can see it's smooth and it's plain when you start out and it's nice and wide. But where you can't see it, it will get more difficult and it's overrun with thorns and thistles and, and it'll be difficult. And I said, well, what about the other road? And they said, well, it starts out difficult. It's overgrown thorns and thistles. And he said, it is, it's very challenging, but then it becomes smoother and broader and wider as you travel it and it goes into the village. Well, according to the parable, most people decided to go on the easy road that they could see. And sure enough, they got stuck in the thorns and thistles and had to turn around and come back. While the people that took what started out to be the difficult road found that as they traveled the road, it got easier and easier and easier. And they got to the village much more quickly than did the other people. And so that was a way of saying, you know, doing things God's way first is generally the best way to get it done. And and life will open up. And so I think Jesus may be saying that uh, to us. One of the things um, my wife and I will sometimes joke about is the Early on, we had a good friend that made the best guacamole in the world, so we decided we'd try to make it. Of course, without getting exactly all the ingredients or the recipe. So we started and had a few avocados that didn't quite taste right, so we added some more avocados and added some more, um, a little bit more of this, a little bit more of that, and didn't taste right, so a few more avocados, more of the other ingredients, and it never came out. And all we had was this mess of 12 to 14 avocados. Well, a few weeks ago, uh, she made uh, the avocado. And this time we got a recipe off the Internet that we had tasted at a restaurant, followed it exactly, and of course, it tasted as it should. Maybe that's what Jesus means. If you'll just follow this recipe, get it right the first time, your life will be easier. And I think that's possible. But I also want you to know there's another interpretation that's very interesting, too. And that is keyed off by this, that many translators say that the word Jesus used here for easy in Greek can also be translated as kind. And Jesus may be saying, look, I've got a teaching, and what you need to know about this teaching is that it is generally kind. And so I think what he's saying is the interpretation I give to the commandments of Moses is going to be a more generous interpretation, a broader interpretation, a more loving interpretation. Walk in that way and you'll find rest. You see, there were a lot of people that had very narrow, strict interpretations of the law of God. And and Jesus talked about them in Matthew 23, verse 4. He said, you know, woe to you, scribes. He said, you add to people's burdens and then you don't lift a finger to help them. You interpret God's law in such a narrow, harsh way in this century that you make it difficult for people to find the life that God has intended. And so Jesus is contrasting his way with their way. And just to make sure we get the point, as soon as chapter 11 ends with this verse about easy and light, the next story is two stories about the Sabbath. This is what you need to know about the Sabbath. There are more than 1,260 ways to break the Sabbath. And the, scribe, the teachers, this, a lot of them, this was their yoke. They were so worried about not keeping the Sabbath that they had all these rules about the Sabbath. And so the next story is Jesus comes along. It's, it's Sabbath. His, his followers are hungry, so they start picking grain from the field, which you're allowed to do, but just not on the Sabbath. And so Jesus gets in trouble for it. And he's like, well, they're hungry. And don't you remember when David and his soldiers were hungry? He actually broke in the tabernacle and took the holy bread, the communion bread, in a sense, and ate it. Do you see how that's a more gentle interpretation than don't, even if you're hungry, don't pick anything on the Sabbath? And then the next story is about a guy with a withered hand. Imagine, cannot use his hand. 
can't play the organ, can't do anything. And on the Sabbath, Jesus comes and heals him. Now, the strict interpretation is this the Sabbath, and we're not going to have any of that. There's no healing. There's nothing that looks like work on the Sabbath. But for Jesus, he wasn't going to let this man suffer with this pain and this incapacity one more minute than he needed to. And he thought the best interpretation of the Sabbath was to heal him and to open a new way of life and rest for this man. Those are two of the ways that, that yokes function in the world. And, and there's kind of a hard way, and, and, and occasionally Jesus will side with that. And there's a more generous way, and often Jesus will side with that one. They're represented by two of the great rabbis that came before Jesus and John the Baptist. Their names were Shammai and Hillel. Some of you have heard me talk to them about before. Shammai, wonderful man of God, but extremely strict, extremely narrow in his interpretation. So, for example, the rabbis debated about whether you could tell a bride that she's beautiful on her wedding day when she's not beautiful. And Shammai, very strict, says, well, no, that would be lying. Does this dress make me look fat? Yes, it does. (laughs) Are you kidding me? That's Shammai. And Hillel was like, what? And his interpretation of the law is so fascinating. He said, how do you, Shammai, know how the groom feels about his bride on their wedding day and what he thinks she looks like? And so they ruled that it was appropriate no matter what to tell the bride that she's beautiful on her wedding day. Two wonderful men of God. One a more narrow interpretation. One a more generous interpretation. And Jesus tends for the most part, not always, to go toward the generous interpretation. Eugene Peterson talks about it this way. He said he has friends in Montana where he lives, and they have this beautiful house and this room from which you can see the Grand Tetons, and it's a beautiful room with a large picture window. And he said it's a great view, but his friends started worrying about that the view was getting messed up by smudges on the glass. So every day they would start to clean the glass so that you could see the Tetons. And then they would start cleaning the glass in the morning and the evening so you could see the Tetons. And then he said after a while they weren't even looking for the Grand Tetons anymore. They were just looking for smudges on the glass. And some people miss the grandeur, the wonder, and the life that God is offering. And they focused on the rules in such a narrow way that they missed the larger purpose that God had, the larger purpose of life. Let me give you an interpretation one scholar gives, which I think is helpful. He said... For the most part, you should never let rules interfere with loving and serving another person in the name of God. If you have a religious rule that keeps you from loving and serving someone else, you might want to take another harder look at that rule. Because perhaps you're placing a yoke that is not easy and a burden that is not light. I'm reminded of the story that you've probably heard about John. He was uh, on his way home from town, uh, out in the country where he lived about more than a century ago. And it's twilight. He's already running late for dinner. So he cuts across a field that he hasn't cut across before, steps into a cistern he didn't know was there, and he ends up at the bottom of the cistern. He cries out for help. But, of course, it's toward the evening, so nobody comes. The next morning, actually, some people come because they're coming from the country to the garden club meeting. And they hear him and they go, John, is that you? And he goes, yes, help, I've been here all night. And they said, this hole, this cistern is a blight on this land. Uh, We're going to do something about that. John is like, great, help. 
and they leave and they go to the meeting and they pass a motion and they get flowers and they come plant it all around the hole to beautify it. And John is still in the hole. Well, a little bit later that morning, there is a a man on his way to the town council meeting. He is one of the the town fathers. He hears John. John, is that you? Yes, help. I've been here all night. I've missed dinner. I've missed breakfast. And he said, yeah, this is dangerous. Nobody should fall in the hole, said the town councilman. He said, you know what? I'm going to go to that meeting and we're going to pass a law. And we're going to make it a $50 fine for falling in that hole. Sure enough, he got it passed, came back. Nailed a, a sign in the ground, $50 fine for falling in this hole, while John's still at the bottom of the cistern saying, can somebody help? And then a couple comes through on their way to town, and they hear him, and they go, John, is that you? Yes, please, can you help? I've been here since last night. And they go, John, we are not surprised. You know when your wife married you, we told her you weren't good. We told her you weren't good enough for her, and you've just gone and proved it. We were right all along, and they walked off into town to spread the news. Finally, a stranger, someone who knew John, but John did not know before, came by and heard John's cries for help. And he said, John, is that you? And he goes, can you help? John said, John said, the stranger said to John, yes, I can. I have been this way myself before. I know that it's treacherous. Let me come down and help you out. And he did. And I think before us, Jesus just puts... I think the situation that when we get the teaching, the commands, the will of God that are not so that we're saved or not saved, but so whether the world will become more like God intended it, that we can generally choose from the tighter than more narrow, the restrictive position that leaves a person in a hole, whether they created it or accidentally fell into it. Or we might read it in such a way as to help the person get out.